Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And no women, you will wow. Just declaim a few lines. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. Hello and welcome once again to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio 75live.com. It's a pleasure to have you all aboard. I'm Shannon Riley. I am a fan of Shakespeare and you have come on to the only radio show in Northeast Kansas devoted exclusively to the works of William Shakespeare. So by that nature, it makes us the best. So yeah, yes. All right. Um, my name is Shannon Riley. Again, I'm not a Shakespeare scholar. I just really love the works of Shakespeare. And I'm very happy to come to you every Sunday to talk about one aspect or another of Shakespeare's life. And we've been working our way through his collected works. And I'm up to a show called Richard II. And this is another history play. It's a very unique history play. And it's one of my favorites. It's really an excellent play. As a matter of fact, it boggles my mind to this day that Richard II is not performed more often. Usually when you say to people, even people who like Shakespeare, name a history play you like, they're going to say Richard III or Henry V. Those are the top two. Richard II is really brilliant, and I'm going to be talking a little bit about why I think that is the case here today as we talk about Richard II. Now, there has to be a little background before I even start this conversation about Richard II. I have been doing a lot of work looking at the histories as they come up, and I was trying to do these all in order. And last week, I did Midsummer's Night Dream, which is a comedy. I'm going to Richard II. And technically, Richard II was probably written before Midsummer. But I wanted to put this whole second group of history plays, the Tetralogy, or the Henriad, as it's sometimes referred to. It's four plays. It starts with Richard II, Henry IV, Part One, Henry IV, Part Two, and Henry V. It tells a continuous story, and they're meant to be grouped together, these plays. So I wanted to do them in order, as we talk about them, to try and show the through line among these four really magnificent plays. If you've been listening to my series, you know that when I first talked about the first tetralogy, which is uh, Henry VI, Part One, Two, and Three, and Richard III, I wasn't as kind, particularly the Henry plays. Uh, Henry VI, One, Two, and Three, and again, he was a young playwright, and he was working with other authors while he was creating them, but they really are weak plays. Out of that first tetralogy, only Richard III is really a play that holds up as a strong play. But even that play does not compare to the work in the second tetralogy. It's years later. You now have a playwright who is confident in his work, who knows what he's talking about, and a playwright who's ready, really ready, to talk about the history of England in a poetic and beautiful fashion. Richard II is written entirely in verse again. This really 
is a very rare occurrence, and it's some of the most beautiful language. It just really catches you and holds you captive. But I also want to do a quick commercial. You see, there's a video montage of these plays that you can get, and it truly is brilliant. I don't. I'm, I'm not sponsored by anybody. No one's paying me to say anything. But if you are a Shakespeare fan and you want to understand and appreciate the histories more, please, by all means, check out The Hollow Crown. It's a four-disc set. Richard III is on one. Henry IV Part One is on one. Henry IV Part Two is on one. And Henry V is on one. It's got some of the greatest actors of our age and up-and-coming young Shakespearean actors. Powerfully played, beautifully staged, beautifully filmed, and it just blows me away. Matter of fact, getting ready for this particular broadcast, I had the pleasure of sitting down and watching The Hollow Crown, Richard II, and it was every bit as glorious as I remember it being. So, there's your commercial. Go to whatever local store that might have video cassettes, video cassettes, video discs, or uh, a place where you can order them, and do yourself a favor and get The Hollow Crown. It's really a magnificent set of four films. But we're going to focus on the first one, and that's Richard II. And as always, before I do that, I like to let my boy introduce... And now, the Shakespeare quote of the week. Excellent. Uh, yes, my boy, and there are so many great lines from Richard II, which is why it's one of my favorite plays. Uh, for instance, it's, let's talk of graves, of worms and epitaphs. Let's... Let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings. Act 3, Scene 2. The tongue of a dying man enforced attention like deep harmony. Act 2, Scene 1. Go thou and fill another room in hell. Act 5, Scene 5. This is a beautifully poetic, fiery play. Now, it was written probably around 1594-1595, and... Its plot line is pretty simple to follow, which is another thing that I really like about the play. First of all, the the play itself only spans the last two years of Richard's life on the throne. It's 1398 to 1400. And the play opens with Richard sitting at his throne. Now, Richard is a young man. He's in his late 20s, early 30s. And he's called before him two of his lords. The first one is Thomas Mulberry, and the second is his cousin, Henry Bolingbroke, who's also related to the Duke of Gloucester. Now they have a conflict, these two, Mulberry and Bolingbroke. Bolingbroke accuses Mulberry of, first of all, squandering money given to him by Richard II to pay for soldiers who work the field. By the way, Henry himself is a very powerful knight, a warrior that is well-respected within his country. The other beef, and is a major one that, he, that Bolingbroke has with Mulberry, is that he accuses him of killing his uncle, the Duke of Gloucester. It's also important to point out that John Gaunt, who is Henry Bolingbroke's father, doesn't believe Mulberry is responsible for that murder. Indeed, he thinks it's the king, Richard II, and that's going to come up in just a little bit. These two lords are fighting with each other, and they want the king to settle the argument. Particularly, Henry wants Richard Mulberry put to death. Richard II is a very ineffectual leader. He's been king since he was 10 years old. He took over the crown when his grandfather, Edward III, died. And his father, the Black Prince, Edward, Prince of Wales, died before his father. And that left poor 10-year-old Henry to take the crown. But Henry believes he's there and anointed by God to be there. 
and so he doesn't worry what other people think about him, even though he's a pretty weak and ineffectual king. And by the way, he did kill Henry's uncle. So, not knowing what to do, the king decides that he's going to settle this argument with, get this, a trial of combat. It's like something out of Game of Thrones. He's going to have these two lords meet and fight it out. And whoever kills the other one must be the one who is right, because God's right will intervene and might will make right. So the next day, the two men meet on the field. John Gaunt is furious. He doesn't want his son to fight. His son Henry isn't worried about it. He is a trained fighter, and he knows he's going to win. But before the fight can begin, Richard stops all activity again and decides instead he is going to ban Marlbury from England for life and Henry for 15 years. And then he reduces it to 10 because he sees how sad John Gaunt looks. He gives no reason for this. It's capricious. He just says, you're going away for life and you're going away for 10 years. Never explaining why it's necessary there's a difference in who's going where and for how long. John Gaunt is beside himself. He doesn't want his son to go. He tells his son, go, make peace in Europe, have a good life, and think not of this country behind you. Henry leaves, crestfallen and upset, and off to Europe he goes. Same with Mulberry. Although Mulberry makes a very prophetic statement saying that this will be the marking of the end of the king, King Richard, that Henry is now destined to return and kill him. Well, we now jump ahead a little bit. John Gaunt is very ill. There's also a problem that there's an uprising in Ireland. England is already involved in the Hundred Years' War between England and France, and Richard is not advancing this war at all. Neither side is really taking much ground or losing much ground. And it really appears that both kings have grown accustomed to being at war, and their economies are based on it. As long as they're at war, they can keep going back to their lords and taking more and more taxes to pay for the war effort. But now there's an uprising in Ireland, and Richard II decides he can easily quell it, particularly since he has his own private army, which has no loyalty to England at all, only to Richard himself. So he raises more funds and decides he's going to go to Ireland, when he suddenly is summoned to the home of John Gaunt, who is dying. Richard goes to John Gaunt, doesn't really want to, but feels like he has to, since John was one of those advisors that took care of him when he was a 10-year-old king. John chastises him. On his dying bed, he calls him a weak, ineffectual king. He calls him out for every mistake he's made. And at one point, Richard even draws a sword, threatening to kill the old man as he lays dying. Gaunt doesn't care. He continues to spit venom at Richard. And Richard storms out. With his last breath, John Gaunt curses him and dies. Richard considers this very opportune, decides to acquire John Gaunt's lands and monies. Never mind that this land, money, the title, everything goes to Henry Bolingbroke, who is currently exiled. The other lords are in an uproar. They demand that he not do this. After all, if they can do it to John Gaunt, they can do it to anybody. But no, the king does not care, and he takes the land, takes the money, and uses it to fund a private skirmish in Ireland. Meanwhile, word gets to Henry Bolingbroke that not only has his father died, but that the king has taken his inheritance. He's furious. He's then approached by nobles who have come from England who say, Come back to England, we will support you, and we will depose your cousin, Richard II. Henry agrees, but they have to do it at the right time. Fortunately, for them anyway, Richard II decides he's going to lead the campaign in Ireland himself, and immediately packs up his army and moves off to Ireland. While he's there, Henry moves back to London, raises an army himself, fortifies alliances, particularly with all those alliances that Richard once enjoyed, 
and is certain that he will have the crown when Richard returns. Richard returns, not triumphant from Ireland. They had a disastrous skirmish. Don't fight the Irish. In the meantime, when he gets back, he learns not only have all the lords and nobles pretty much abandoned him and sided with Henry, but Henry himself is coming for him. In a panic, he runs to the first castle of an ally he can find and holds up. He is certain that God is still on his side and that he will be saved. But when Henry arrives, there is very little skirmish at all. His own men abandon him. Richard is taken into custody. Henry is crowned Henry IV, King of England. And then he says, take Richard to the tower. Do not harm him. He's taken to a tower, and some days later, he is killed by a zealous knight. Now ends this career of this ineffectual leader, Richard II, and starts the reign of Henry IV. There is so much I want to talk about this play because it changes not only English history, but the succession of kings is now in question. If your cousin can come in and take the crown from you, anyone with any drop of royal blood might be able to do the same thing. And this whole turn of events is the catalyst for the War of Roses. It's exciting. I can't wait to talk to you about it on the other side, but first we're going to take a short break. And when we return... We will talk more about the life and times of Richard II. Right here is where I would say now for a brief word from our sponsors, but I'm just sitting here waiting for you to put words in my mouth. So for advertising opportunities, go to 785live.com. is proud to present KSEF Digital Radio, Topeka, Kansas. That's the thing you're listening to right now. And we're celebrating everything local and everything Topeka. Learn more at 785live.com. And thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome back. Thank you all for tuning in to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio. 785live.com. I'm Shannon Riley, your host for Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, where I talk a little bit about the works of William Shakespeare, and today we're talking about his history play, Richard II. By the way, if you'd like to talk to me, I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email at shannon at shannonjriley.com. Riley is spelled R-E-I-L-L-Y. You can send me an email there. Uh, let me know uh, what you think of the show, if you have any questions, anything you'd like me to focus on in any upcoming episode. I'd love to hear from you. And also, stop, take a look around, hang out at my website at shannonjriley.com. You're going to find my plays, my short films, some tweets. It's kind of fun place. We hope you'll check it out. And if you know of a theater looking for really good romantic comedies, I've got a couple up there that they should check out. So please consider doing that. I also want to remind you that I'm involved in a Shakespeare production right now as well. It's an all-female version of Midsummer's Night Dream. It's going to be produced here in Topeka. Uh, and the end of uh, May, May 29th, here in a park nearby. It's really going well. If you're in the area, I hope you check it out. It's a new company called the Lady Shakes Company, and I'm very, very proud of each and every one of them involved, so I hope you go see that. All right, we're talking about Richard II, and again, this is one of my favorite histories. It still boggles my mind that it's not done more, but I'm willing to bet an awful lot of you didn't know there was a Richard II play anyway. I want to talk, first of all, about... Shakespeare's play, and then I want to talk about how it deviates from the real life 
of Richard II, and really also how it is quite connected. First of all, as I said, it was probably done around 1594, 1595, but it has a very unique distinction in that it was rushed to publication. I've said many times before that they just didn't rush to publish a play because they, once you memorize it, you want to keep it in your canon. But it is theorized that they rushed to publication with Richard II simply because Henry IV was coming and they want to make sure everybody knew what was leading up to that story. So they, they rushed to publish it really rather quickly. The first quarter of it was published in 1597. A second and third publication was done in 1598. This is the only time a Shakespearean play is published three times within two years. It goes on to be published two more times and then shows up, of course, in the first folio in 1623. Five different publications of Richard II, meaning there was a genuine interest in reading this play. I've said before, Elizabethans love to talk about their history, and this was a very strong part of their history because it led into the War of Roses, which was a very potent and powerful moment in English history. Richard II was a Plantagenet king. Plantagenets first became, came into power under Henry II. The Plantagenets had a long reign, the longest reign of any single course of family in English history. They lasted for nearly 300 years on the throne. Henry is the first Lancaster king, and the war between the Lancasters and the Plantagenets became known as the War of the Roses, and it was actually ended by the first Tudor king, Henry VII, when he kills Richard III on the battlefield. Now, these quartos that I mentioned all had various differences, and they're kind of relatively small differences, but they, there are multiple ways where the text differentiates. It's not certain whether or not this was done by Shakespeare himself, or whether or not this was done by the typesetter, or by the finding of new materials or further productions that made it change. We do know that the latest copy of that quarto that was done is what is included in the 1623 first folio, meaning they consider that the definitive version. There was another Richard II play that existed at the time, and as all things Shakespeare, there's some confusion regarding that. This second play, or possibly first play, was known as The Tragic Life of Richard II, Part 1, and it's subtitled Thomas of Woodstock. It's called Thomas of Woodstock by scholars for, for reference. Now, some scholars do believe Shakespeare might have written this first part because it happens to end right before Richard II picks up for Shakespeare. But I find this highly unlikely. One, Shakespeare didn't call it Richard II, Part 2. He called it The Tragic Life of Richard II. This first play, The Tragic Life of Richard II, second part one was probably a previous playwright. They don't even have the same characters in the two different plays, so it's unlikely that this is a Shakespeare play. It also is not filled with near the rich dialogue and powerful verse that you find in Richard II. It's very possible that it's a play that Shakespeare knew that he bought, perhaps, and read as a reference, because he used also for references for this play Holinshield's The Life and Times of uh, British Kings. He uses uh, Edward Hall's book, The Union of Two Illustrious Families of Lancaster and York. So this could have been just another reference work that Shakespeare used for Richard I, although he seems to have discarded almost all of it. None of the characters are there. He simply picks up wherever that play left off. So, I'm going to discount that. It obviously wasn't written by Shakespeare, because if it was written by Shakespeare, his company would have put it in the great first folio when it was published in 1623 after his death. But they didn't. So, I'm well in my belief that Richard II that appears in the folio is the only Richard II 
that Shakespeare wrote. But I want to talk about the difference of Richard II as opposed to other histories. Now, he's written another tetralogy, as I've already discussed. He also wrote The Life of Edward III, which I talked about in an earlier episode. This is the grandfather and the king that preceded Richard II, though it's not considered to be part of this tetralogy, simply because it doesn't pick up exactly where it left off. It's many years later when Richard is towards the end of his reign. And he also wrote King John, which is another history that has absolutely nothing to do with any of the other plays. Matter of fact, some scholars don't even call it a history. They list King John as another one of his tragedies. But Richard II starts off as a lustry second tetralogy, or what is also known as the Henriad, a collection of stories reaching to Henry V, arguably what a lot of scholars believe to be the finest history written by Shakespeare. But it's an interesting history in that Shakespeare does something in Richard II he does nowhere else, and that is he exposes the life of two kings of England. Usually you can see some conflict between the man who is king and the person who will eventually replace him, but it is not the driving force of the story. This one, it is the driving force of the story. Henry IV, Henry Bolingbroke, has almost as many lines as Richard II. The other thing is he paints Richard II as someone who believes himself to have been destined to be king, which is very, very true. But also, this desperation, this, this insistence that he is God-appointed to be king is seen as tragic in and of itself. He's seen as slightly crazy. He's a person to be pitied. And indeed, Richard II was maybe, the way he ended, worth pitying. But he was a vicious king in real life. And these are the things that Shakespeare doesn't include. As I mentioned, Shakespeare doesn't talk about the fact that Richard II came to the throne at 10 years old. And at 10 years old, he was not ready to be king. So a group of counselors were put together to rule in his stead, and he was to learn at their feet of what it was like to be a king. Well, these counselors are pretty bad, at least as far as the peasants are concerned. They tax the heck out of the peasants. They're collecting revenue. They're living lavishly. They seem to act as if they do not need to respond to law or order at all, and yet they punish the peasants severely. This leads to a potential civil war. At one point, when Richard II is very small, 10 years old, he's hiding in the Tower of London with none other than a 10-year-old Henry Bolingbroke, his cousin, because there is a mob outside that want the head of their counselors. So the counselors come up with a great idea, and this is a true story. They decide to get rid of the mob so they can escape. They'll put this 10-year-old kid in a chariot and send him out into the crowd and let him run away with the crowd chasing him. Nice people, huh? So they put this 10-year-old in this carriage. I said chariot, it's a carriage. And they send him out with a small band of guards. The peasants split and let him go by. They're not after a 10-year-old boy. He didn't do anything. They're after those greedy bastards who are still inside. And they use this moment with the gate open to let the carriage out to get inside and get inside they do. Now, many of these counselors get away, including John Gaunt, but some are captured and they are immediately beheaded. There's even an archbishop who was part of the counseling team that also filled his chest with gold, who has his mitre hat nailed to his head, then he's decapitated and his head put on a pike and carried through the street. These are gruesome people and they are angry, but they let Richard II get away. 
Henry Bolingbroke, by the way, was hiding inside the Tower of London, but he never got found. He was hiding inside a cupboard, and being so small, no one thought to look in there. He survives. And so does Richard II. A few days later, the peasants amass again, and the noblemen with their armies go out to meet the peasants. But this time, Richard II goes along. He stays back with the army as a band of nobles goes out to meet the leaders of the peasants. It's a very tense meeting, and at one point, one of the soldiers guarding a nobleman pulls out his sword and slashes the cheek of one of the peasants. Tempers are high, people start pulling bowstrings and rattling swords, and before any fight can take place, Richard II, this ten-year-old boy, does an amazing thing. He goes riding his horse out to meet the crowd and says, I am your king, put down your sword. And they do. The peasants do. They immediately recognize him as king. He says, you will anoint a few of you to come see me at the Tower of London in two weeks' time, and we will work out these differences. And everybody disbands. He does this because ever since he was a boy, he was told he was to be king. It's divinely inspired. And when these peasants come to meet with Richard II, he tells them, you're peasants. You always will be peasants. One more uprising and you will all die. He takes their leaders and he has them killed. This is the ruthlessness that Richard grows up to be. He is so untrusting of his noblemen, he creates his own private army. Twice the noblemen try to dispose him as king, and twice he is able to get out of it because they are afraid of what it would mean to the succession of kings if they just took one off. It isn't until Henry Bolingbroke says, I've had enough, and he agrees to be the person to depose him. And then here's the final difference that Shakespeare makes. Shakespeare has Richard II killed by an angry nobleman in the tower. That is not what happened. Henry IV is so afraid of what people will say about this disposition that he wants no mark left on Richard II to show that he was killed. So he does this horrible thing. He locks him in a tower, very small room, no water, no food, and leaves him to die. And that's what happens. He slowly dies of thirst. Horrible. But he wasn't a great guy. But it's a horrible way to go. This plague of taking the crown from a rightful ruler is what will drive the rest of this Henriad. Henry IV is always certain someone's coming next to take his throne. And he wants it for his son Henry V. And it is this desire to prove that he is the rightful king that leads Henry V to become the victor of Angie Court. Oh, it's an exciting, exciting story. And we're going to talk more about it because next week we're going to go into Henry IV, Part 1. I thank you all for listening to Shedding Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF, Digital Radio, 785Live.com. And I hope you join me next week. Until that time, keep it barred to the bone. Bye-bye. <laughs> This is Sean, the poet, and Stoke Poet and the Fool. Uh, listen to us on the 7s, AM, PM, FM, 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 LM, DM, DM, DM us if you want to listen to us on the AM and the PM and the FM, FM. Bye. <laughs>